0: To start off today, I want to tell you that this Jewish-born Unitarian Universalist minister is observing Lent once again. (laughs) I think it'll probably be the 10th time in my life that I have observed Lent. I love the practice of letting go what's not working for me, and right now what's not working for me in my life, candy. (laughs) Candy and sweets. Candy is where my appetite tends to hide out. And by appetite, I'm not just talking about my hunger. I'm talking about, like, I really want deep desire and you know i don't even go for the good stuff like you know godiva chocolate or anything i'm talking like the willy wonka straight line main line sugar high gets me acting like a rabid squirrel kind of thing you know that that's where my desire likes to hide out and and by telling you this i am i'm not asking you to uh help police my personal prohibition i'm not asking for your help i'm really not however i just gazed that direction already if uh That's where the donuts are. So if you see me talking to you and it looks like I've lost contact with you for a moment and I'm looking, I'm kind of smacking my lips and looking a little disconnected. It's just that the donuts got me for a moment. I promise I'll come right back. So please forgive me. Now, here's the thing about observing the practice of Lent. I don't think punishment is a spiritual practice. And so I'm not punishing myself. By taking candy and sweets and sugar out of my diet. It is for me a small way to remove an internal attachment. The benefit with this small means, is that I can experience slightly more freedom in my desire, move away from compulsion into choice. Uh, Viktor Frankl, who some of you know, wrote one of the most famous books about the Holocaust. He was a Holocaust survivor himself, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He has a quote that talks about in the space between the stimulus and response, there is freedom. And if we honor that space between the stimulus and the response and don't just immediately react, what we do there, what we can experience there, is a greater freedom. A greater sense of really choosing what we wish and that which is beneficial for ourselves and other people. Ultimately, it comes down to whenever I think any of us remove those internal impediments of compulsion, it gives us more liberty to love more opportunity to authentically connect to our own lives and to connect to the other folks' lives around us. Now, one of the central teachings, and those of you who grew up Catholic might recognize these words. One of the central teachings of Lent is, Remember, thou art dust, and to dust thou will return. Now, this might sound depressing or despairing, But actually, I find what it does for me is that it reminds me of how precious our time here is. As so many traditions preach about that this, as much as we know it, it is impermanent and changing. And so if we can treasure it and recognize the impermanence and the changefulness of our lives, we may, in fact, open up ourselves to care for our lives even more intentionally Helmut Kester was a man who for many years, decades, taught at Harvard Divinity School and taught Christian scriptures and was beloved by the students that he led. Many years ago on an Ash Wednesday, the period that starts Lent in the Catholic calendar, he said in a message, Lent can be a time of creaturely tenderness. I love that phrase, creaturely tenderness. By recognizing our impermanence and the brief time we get to share with each other, it is an invitation to connect with each other on a deeper way, hopefully moving away from those things that are attachments and compulsions and into that deeper connection of our own true heart's desire. For me, it connects into one of my favorite spiritual teachers, the Buddhist teacher Jack Kornfield, who really boils it down He says, all spiritual teachings are in vain if we cannot love. Because Lent is not, I think, about punishment or restraining myself from something that's good for me or something that's bad for me. And it's certainly not about whatever that thing is called mortification of the flesh. Now, Lent is about that time, as all our time can be, of greater creaturely tenderness. That the true measure of our spiritual growth is in our ability to connect lovingly and compassionately with ourselves and with these other creatures that we share life with. It is one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings that our freedom finds its fulfillment with each other, not in spite of each other, not around the edge of each other, but with each other. I talked at the beginning of this message series about spiritual friendship that many people, millions of people, for some very good and right and wise reasons, increasingly describe themselves as spiritual and not religious. And I get that. I understand that religious to many people means non-life-giving dogma. It means condemnation because of some part of you. Religion means strictures and rules and no spirits and no heart. I get that. I understand why people describe themselves as spiritual Not religious. But I think if the conversation ends there, in terms of our self-understanding, we lose something. Because I think the central challenge of our time is not spiritual, not religious. It's spiritual and not connected. Or spiritual and connected. Because that's where real, true, deep spirituality makes a difference in our lives. It can be really easy to, quote-unquote, I love this, feel spiritual, As if spirituality was some kind of passing feeling, passing fancy, you know, as if it comes from only walks in the woods or seeing a really great movie or diving into the surf at the ocean at dusk or dawn, hopefully when the sharks aren't feeding, um, because, well, then it might be a very spiritual time for the sharks, but not for you. It'd be really easy to, quote-unquote, feel spiritual, but to take that feeling and cultivate it within ourselves on a... Daily basis, regular basis within our spiritual lives, that is the essence of spiritual maturity. And that's why I'm preaching this message about spiritual friendship, because the fruits of our authentic growth show up in our relationships. It's what Whitman was talking about in those words. Charge them full with the charge of the soul. That's what he talks about in that poem from which our mission is taken. Charge them full with the charge of the soul. And he also says, receive the charge of the soul from them. He is talking about a spiritually that's not ethereal, that's not metaphysical, that's not otherworldly. It's right here and right now. And it's that soul that is exchanged when we truly get to know and love our own lives and other people's lives as well. He says that charge the soul also in a wonderful kind of 1850s phrase, discorrupts us. I think he's talking about removing the unnecessary accretions that build up in our spiritual lives, much like plaque can build up in arteries. To be discorrupted of those unnecessary things, those hurtful habits, those unhelpful habits, to remove those and receive that charge of the soul is to be in authentic connection with our lives. This is to learn to to be a spiritual friend. And so inspired by that, I wanted to share with you three different ways of being a spiritual friend today. And it comes from another wonderful, great poet of the spiritual life hundreds of years before. it. It comes from Rumi. And some of you might know these words that you're seeing here in back of me. Be a lamp or a lifeboat or a ladder. Help someone's soul heal. Walk out of your house like a shepherd. Be a lamp, or a lifeboat, or a ladder. Those are all three different ways of being a spiritual friend. I want to walk through them a little bit here today. The first one, a lamp. Let your life shine. That's the best way to be a lamp. Simply let your life shine, even especially when you think no one is looking. That's the best way to be a spiritual friend because you're not having any expectation of presenting yourself in a particular way where you want anything. You're just being yourself and letting your light shine. Some of the best words I ever heard about me early in my ministry came out of a time when I was obsessed with how I was presenting myself. But in this moment, I wasn't. I was preaching at a friend's wedding. And these are two people who are now Episcopal priests. And it was at the uh, Episcopal church in which one of them grew up. And trust me, it's not a real common thing for a Unitarian Universalist minister to be allowed to preach in some Episcopal churches. But they gave me that honor because they're some of my closest friends. And I was told that after the service, one of them went to one of, member of that couple that was married, someone who had known them in that church since they had been like six years old and had seen them grow up. And they said about me, about their friend who was blessing their wedding. The love of God shines very strongly in him. And I thought, wow, that was cool because I wasn't trying too hard. (laughs) I wasn't trying, forcing to let my light shine. I think that our light of our lamps shines most brightly and most truly when we do not act out of compulsion that another person needs to see our light, but simply lets our light be attractive simply to be a lamp from just growing our spiritual selves every day and remaining committed and allowing ourselves to see because there is a huge difference between, difference between being a lamp. I mean, Rumi could have said, be a torch. But there's a difference between a lamp and a torch because we have to be very careful in our spiritual friendships that as we are sharing our light, we are not so bright, so overwhelming that we drown out other people's light. Or we blind or scorch them with our light. How we share our light matters just as much as the fact that we have light in the first place. I think it all comes down to the fact of how do we allow other people to see our light in the way that they wish to. Not in the way we would have it presented. Particularly if we are with a struggling friend. A friend who is in difficulty are we allowing that person to say yes or no to our light? I mean, I've heard a lot of negative stories of unsolicited opinions and advice over the, over the years. Sometimes I've been guilty of it. You know, it comes with this, oh, this is what you should do. Well, you know, the person might say, I don't really ask for your opinion in the first place. So allow a friend the space to say, yes, please help me. Or to ask that person first, would you like my perspective on this? See, asking permission in that way is a channel that allows your light to be directed to that person in an authentic way and doesn't seek to overcome them. Because healing, I mean this is in the poem, this is in what Rumi said, help heal another person's soul. Healing is not fixing. Especially in spiritual matters, I think fixing is one of the worst things we can try to do. Try to fix each other as if we were a problem to be solved or a mechanical device or a hard drive that is broken. Healing is very different than fixing because the word fixing, it shares a, it shares a root with, with a word that actually is not too positive a word, fixated. <laughs> to be fixated on someone or to be fixated on something within ourselves makes them the problem. And so to be an unhealing helper... To be the kind of person who wants to share their light so badly that we don't even stop to ask permission, is this helpful for you, is to be the kind of person who actually shares their shadow more than they share their light. I must tell you that one of the experiences of being and receiving a spiritual friend that is most meaningful to me, one of the only Wellsprings meetings that I never miss every single month is my ministerial clergy support group. There's about seven other colleagues from around this area, and we get together, and we break bread together, and we pray together, and we laugh together, and we certainly have cried together a lot, and they know me. They call me out when I'm presenting my story in a particular kind of way as to shed too good a light on me. They know my shadow. To have spiritual friends who call us out when our shadows, we are trying to hide from them or hide them from others. That is a wonderful gift. I heard a quote this past week. I can't even remember who said it. But it says that the best mirror, the best mirror we can have is a really good friend. Because they will see our light. And they will perceive our shadow. And they will not lie to us. It will be one of our best means of reflecting back to us the truth of who we are. Sometimes in spiritual friendship, simply sharing our light, though, isn't enough, which is why I think Rumi was wise enough to say, okay, there's another way to do that. There's the lifeboat. What happens when we really need to rescue someone who is in peril? Well, the first step we think, I think we need to talk about within ourselves before we want to be a lifeboat, is to ask ourselves, is our friend actually really drowning? Or do we just think they're drowning and we want to rescue them prematurely? There's a story of a woman named Diana Nyad who swum or attempted to swim between Havana Bay and Key West. A hundred and three miles through shark-filled waters and very choppy seas. There only had been one other person who did it before them and they did the whole thing in a shark cage. She did it without the shark cage. hundred and six miles spread out over three days. When she was only three miles off the coastline of Havana Bay and the sea was still pretty calm and smooth, she started to get a cramp and a pain in her shoulder that made her think she wouldn't be able to continue. I mean, she almost felt immobilized. And yet, she kept swimming and finished that day. The next day, she started out again, and 1.30 in the afternoon... She recognized she was having difficulty breathing. And she recognized she was having the first ever asthma attack in her life. Never had one before. But still she kept swimming. Twelve hours after that, in the middle of the night, about 50 miles in, halfway in the middle of the ocean, between Havana Bay and Key West, Diana Nyad was treading water and started to vomit uncontrollably. At that point, the boat that had been alongside her every stroke, every step, if you will, of her journey lifted her up and out of the water because she had gone as far as she could. To truly be a spiritual friend that is a lifeboat is to know it's not about our timeline. It's about making that journey alongside our friends so that when truly they are in jeopardy, they will tell us they need us and we can save them from rescue. Now, most of us are not going to swim. Through shark-infested waters, 103 miles, and need a literal lifeboat by our side. But many of us, I would dare say, know that place of being in the waiting room in the hospital. Know that place of being by the bedside of the dying. Know what it's like to sit in that waiting room, sometimes in a doctor's office, holding our friend's hand when they are about to get a life sentence or a death sentence. In those moments, to be a spiritual friend that is that lifeboat that says, I'm not going to let you drown, is also to know it's not about our timeline. It's not about us. In those moments, the spiritual friend is there as pure presence. Not to offer help that's not wanted. But simply to offer the sense of presence that says you are not alone. I remember I grew up with, uh, Free to Be You and Me. Any of you remember that? Free to Be You and Me? I think that kinda, yeah, a lot of the 40-somethings and 30-somethings, yeah. Uh, I don't, is that getting passed on to the next generation? I don't have kids, is it? Eh, alright. It was very, very 70s. But one of the things I remember most about it, I remember It's All Right to Cry, big, hulking Rosie Greer playing his guitar, former football player. It's All Right to Cry. Well, if he can, then I can too. That's pretty good. I also remember the song that's about help. Sometimes the help is the kind of help that helping's all about. Sometimes the help is the kind of help we all can do without. It's the kind of help that is intrusive. It's the kind of help that insists upon its own way. It's the kind of help that wants to rescue p- people prematurely because we have such a need to be the lifeboat. We have such a need to be of use. The true lifeboat friendships allow ourselves to simply accompany a person through their journey. And because of the trust built by everyday presence and regular companionship, then, when the time comes, help lift me out. Then we can be that lifeboat. It's like for those of you who are parents. Sometimes you need to let the kids fail. Sometimes the training wheels come off and the kid's going to fall. That happens. That's what it is to be a lifeboat, to accompany and be there and sometimes, yes, even help lift up our friend when they have fallen. That's why I think Rumi offered that final choice as well, to be a ladder. Now, one of the choices in, if any of you have ever done water safety instructor, the American Red Cross stuff, you know that the four kind of rules of being a lifesaver is reach, throw, row, go. The last thing you do is get in the water. The last thing you do is try and touch that person. You try and throw something to them to haul them back up or back in. But sometimes we need to make contact because our friends are in such jeopardy or in such need. And so, the latter. That true capacity to reach down and in and lift up the friend who is struggling so mightily that but for your assistance they might... Perish or expire. Now, one of the things about a ladder is this. I would venture to say, because it happened to me, that the first time I looked at that, the first time we're looking at that, we might think, okay, ladders are for climbing. And they are. But ladders are also for something else just as much. Ladders are for descending. Ladders are about allowing ourselves to go down down ladders are not just about climbing up ladders are also about climbing down I think of one of the stories in the Hebrew scriptures that is kind of quote-unquote the, the the book about suffering you know if you want to find out about you know Hebrew scriptures and suffering read the book of Job well honestly there are absolutely no answers about suffering in the book of Job the only thing that happens is Job radically changes his conscience during that and God appears from a whirlwind which is not what Job expected at all and something changes within him But before we get to that point in the end of the story, Job, who has lost everything and is in this pitiful state with sores on his body and torn clothes and laying in the dust. What is the first thing that the friends do? They take the ladder down. They walk down and they sit there. They just sit there with him. Now, after a while, this is a story about temptation, the temptation to Want to save people in our timeline. The temptation to want to have things turn out the way that we want them to. After a while they get a little tired sitting there with him. Their compassion runs low. And so they start telling him the reasons that he is suffering. They start isolating him. Giving him all the ways that he has screwed up and must deserve this horrendous fate. I'm not saying that sometimes people don't suffer because of their actions. Sometimes they do, obviously. But to tell our friends that, rather than allowing them, through our companionship, to figure that out for themselves, it is to shortcut their growth. It is to shortcut their ability to awaken to the truth of their lives and recognize that we are not the end of that process. We can only ever be a means. Think of the R.E.M. song, one of my favorite of theirs. It's called Falls to Climb. It's that paradox, like Richard Rohr, one of my favorite Franciscan teachers, talks about in his book on the second half of life. He calls it falling upwards. It's that paradox of recognizing that as we truly descend down the ladder to be with friends who may be struggling, that that is perhaps the truest form of companionship and allows them eventually to rise. My favorite representation of this in a movie is from one of, I think, the best spiritual films made in the last decades, Little Miss Sunshine. i preached on it here before. I love that final scene in the movie, that final scene where little Olive, who has been banking all her heart's desire on the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. And once they get to the Little Miss Sunshine pageant, the whole family can see that it is creepy and exploitative and nonsense and judgmental and just something they don't want to be associated with. And one of the things I love about it is that the um, the heroin sniffing father who dies and this is like a great pilgrimage kind of story because pilgrimages always involve death. I mean, they always involve having to deal with death and he loves Olive so much and it's a very sad thing when he dies. But he's given her this final gift, which is that her final dance for the swimsuit competition is going to be dancing to Rick James's Super Freak. And at the same time, she is making a complete wonderful ass of herself. She is also satirizing this absurd situation she is in. And the people, the very annoying people who run this pageant, are almost ready to give her the hook. Because, you know, here she is, the six-year-old girl in this absurd environment... Basically doing something like a strip tease, which is what the pageant is itself, if they would be most honest. And they're about to give her the hook, and they're about to humiliate her one final time. And all the family members come up and start dancing super freak with her. Making the deserved mockery of this horrendous occasion what it is, and at the same time crawling right down into the hole with olive and because they crawl down what are they doing simultaneously they are rising and raising up everyone's spirit to fall to climb sometimes that is the only way to use and to be a ladder is to know first we must go down before we can rise up I think that is one of the things that unites all of these three approaches that Rumi talks about in being a spiritual friend is they all have to do with the practice and the presence of patience to know that sometimes to be the truest friend we can is not to have answers. It is to engage in the uncertainty and the difficulty of what our friend is experiencing. There are many ways to experience great pleasure with our friends. I mean, I just booked three days in March with three of my oldest friends in Atlantic City. I'm going to smoke cigars and stay up late and hopefully win a little bit of money and probably lose a bunch of money as well, too. And we're going to have fun. But where our friendships are more than just good time friendships, where they become spiritual friendships is because of all the life we have shared over the last 20 to 25 years that we have seen each other through marriages that failed and divorces and miscarriages. And the kind of difficulty that when we show each other people our light and our shadow, we can really see. Because those kinds of things, by the way, don't have quote-unquote answers. The answer that comes about through spiritual friendship is simply the gift of our presence to each other. And so that makes spiritual friendship kind of the ultimate testing ground of our spiritual practice. Our ability to show up for our lives and be there for and with other people and share nothing but the absolute gift of our presence. As some of you know, I'm I'm continuing my training as a mindfulness teacher, and I've just started working in a supervisory group with other teachers, and one of the fellow aspirant teachers in the group uh, is very fond of uh, making up little mindfulness joke-like buttons, so he's got like Zen dog that sits up like this with the uh, kind of like in a posture pose, and he also has one that he gave me this past week that I absolutely love, also sort of dog-related, but it changes the last word. Sit, stay, heal. But not H E E L. Sit, stay, heal. H E A L. That's what spiritual friendship equips us to do and invites us to do. To sit and to stay and to heal. Not just another's life, but our own life. To sit and to stay and to heal. The sitting and the staying. So much about what our best friendships are comprised by. So today I wish you the capacity with your friends to sit and to stay and to heal. And if you do that, well, good Wellspringers. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Oh, divinity of connection, of the presence and the power of friendships who can see and perceive and receive light and darkness, of friends who are the ones who pull us up into the boats and the friends who allow us to be the boat for them. The friends with whom we descend and ascend. The ones with whom we can fall, but not ultimately. And so the ones with whom we can climb. May we have deep gratitude for these friends. And for our capacity to be this kind of friend. May our gratitude be expressed not just in looking backward and saying thank you. But may our gratitude be expressed by moving forward and sharing our heart's true friendship with those we love. Amen.